Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast. I'm James Nurse, a paediatrician and the journal's social media editor. Having released fortnightly episodes over the last two years, there's now hours of content featuring world-class researchers explaining their ideas and discussing their work. The podcast is a great chance to find papers you might have missed, so be sure to subscribe or follow us to never miss an episode. But for now, keep listening for the latest episode on the Undiagnosed Diseases Programme. So sometimes our podcasts feature specific diseases, but sometimes our podcasts talk about wider topics with inherited metabolic disease. And notably, how we diagnose inherited metabolic disease is always something that people are particularly keen to find out more about. So I'm delighted to welcome today Dr. Carolina Montana and Dr. Thomas Cassini, both of whom work for the National Institute for Health in Bethesda, um, to talk about their paper, Diagnosis and Discovery, Insights from the NIH Undiagnosis Diseases Programme. Thomas and Carolina, thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah. Yeah, great. Um, So this paper looks at the NIH's Undiagnosed Diseases Program. I wonder if you could briefly explain what it is and why it's needed. Yeah, the NIH Undiagnosed Diseases Program, which we call the UDP, was established first in 2008. The primary goal was to help patients find diagnosis, what we call end the diagnostic journey that they've undergone through years and years of not having the correct diagnosis. And we do that through multidisciplinary uh, clinical as well as genetic testing. The second goal of the UDP was to actually discover new diseases. And that way, advance medical knowledge and understand through that how the body works, how physiology works, teach us about disease. So by the time the patients come to us, to the UDP, they have already undergone typically multiple testing. They've already seen multiple doctors, not just in the United States, but around the world. So the role of the members of the UDP team is to go through a review of all the records and select the people that should participate in the program. And once these people are selected, then they come here uh, to NIH in Bethesda, Maryland, as you're saying, uh, to our clinical center, which is a special research hospital inside of NIH to undergo deep phenotyping through multidisciplinary clinical evaluations and even more testing, more imaging, uh, more metabolic testing, just to gather all the information we need to solve the case. And because it's been uh, successful, it was expanded to additional sites. In 2014, it expanded to six other institutions with more sequencing cores, more metabolomics, model organisms. And then in 2018, four years later, it was actually doubled in size and expanded. It went from six uh, additional clinic sites to 12 clinical sites around the United States. Thanks, Carolina. That's a, that's a great overview of the program. And I was just going to speak to a little bit more uh, what it's like for each individual patient who's enrolled in the program. As Carolina started to talk about, they'll all undergo a very thorough clinical assessment for deep phenotyping by multiple clinicians generally who have expertise in uh, the area of illness that the patient has. This may include additional clinical testing, updating testing that's been done on the outside or doing testing that for whatever logistical reasons couldn't get done. Sometimes there's testing that's only available on a research basis and sometimes testing that requires some specific protocol to be done. That testing will also include generally uh, sequencing for almost every patient, which today is done with genome sequencing, unless the patient has had some sequencing already, and then we can reanalyze that. That comes with a very thorough bioinformatics analysis that looks not only at known disease-associated genes, but also novel loci, and sometimes will come with research-based sequencing as well, something like RNA-seq or long reads to clarify variants or find new variants. The UDP also has the capability with the variant 
variants we find to further validate those with research testing. Uh, this can include things like functional assay on a fibroblast culture from patient cell lines, or even creating a model organism with a variant of interest to examine the phenotype that way. So a diagnosis can be made at any step along the way, but oftentimes requires combining all the information from the steps to put together to a diagnosis. Many patients will still be undiagnosed after that, at which point we engage in, in data sharing and continue to analyze as new literature comes out to really work as hard as we can to find an answer for every patient in the program. Sounds like basically house, an episode of house, for every, <laughs> although probably not closed up in 60 minutes. I imagine. It takes a little longer than that, usually. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds so impressive and it's so thorough and it kind of reminds me of the the opening to the AT. You can tell I love my television <laughs> programs. And they say, if you have a problem, no one else can help. So, so how do people with a problem, as it were, how do they find you? Yeah, we can be found where most things are found these days, on the internet. Uh, there's a website for the UDN. Uh, it's undiagnosed.hms.harvard.edu, and that has a link to the application process. I should mention that it's a little unclear what format the UDN is going to take after the end of the Common Fund in 2023, but I'm confident that there are going to be options out there for undiagnosed patients seeking an answer. Uh, the UDP at the NIH is going to continue to see patients beyond that. And I know a number of the sites also have plans for their own programs. For instance, Vanderbilt has the Vanderbilt Undiagnosed Disease Program already up and running. As Carolina had, had mentioned previously, there is an application process. Unfortunately, although the resources are pretty extensive of the program, there, there is limitations to those, and we really need to be mindful of how we're allocating those resources to maximize benefit to the undiagnosed community as a whole. That application involves the patient submitting medical records, as well as two letters, one from a provider and then one from the patient themselves or the patient's caregiver, if that's more appropriate, based on the cognitive function of the patient. That's always the first thing I start with when I'm reviewing an application is the patient letter, I really like to hear it from them in, in their words, what their illness is and how it's affecting their lives. And so all those applications undergo a very thorough review process, not only to determine acceptance status, but also sometimes we can make recommendations just based on review to the home team about further workup or treatment options for the patient. And indeed, diagnoses have actually been made that way without a patient ever being enrolled in the program. So sometimes some of the crude metrics people use to judge success of a program like this, like simply taking the number of diagnoses divided by the number of patients enrolled, don't always tell the full story. So we really do our best to provide assistance to all those who are reaching out for it. Because you mentioned international applications. It, it strikes me as sort of a model you could export as well. Yeah, so there actually has been uh, expansion uh, with the UDN International to international sites. So uh, patients from around the world can enroll through through that program as well. And I know at the clinical center here through the UDP, we have certainly seen international patients as well. Um, within the paper, you highlight six specific cases that you use the first two to show that you're not just making diagnoses, you're actually finding new diseases too, as Carolina said in, in her introduction. Yes, it's our second goal, right? To discover those new diseases. And one way we do that is to actually 
pick the cold cases, if we're using that detective analogy, um, is picking the cases that haven't been solved, the ones that remain undiagnosed despite having had all these evaluations. So all the people that have known diseases, they're not part of our cohort. We need people where all those known diseases have already been kind of uh, ruled out so that we can actually increase the chances of us discovering something new. It's either they may have escaped diagnosis because they're either completely new conditions or it could be an atypical presentation of a condition that is known, but that went unidentified because they need a deeper phenotyping or further laboratory testing or further imaging. As you mentioned, the first part of, of our paper describes a couple of cases that we thought highlighted this really well. And one of them um, we can talk a little bit about it was the case of the new lysosomal storage disease. And that was interesting because of the mechanism was a new mechanism that didn't involve the typical uh, either enzyme defect or transport defect that led to accumulation of, of something inside of the lysosome. It was actually a mutation that affected the pH of the lysosome, making it actually more acidic because it was a gain-of-function mechanism, not something where you lost function like typically you see in, in these metabolic conditions. And it was interesting because it was two unrelated kids, one in the UDP and one not seen at the UDP. The other kid had actually been seen in New Jersey, but again, because of the collaborative nature of the work, we were able to put the picture together because both kids presented as infants and both kids presented with the same things. Both at birth were albino. They had cutaneous hypopigmentation throughout. They both had enlarged livers. They both had enlarged kidneys. They both had global developmental delays. They both had similar brain MRI findings with delayed myelination. And once the basic scientists got involved and electron microscopy was done in the cells of these patients, they were able to see these huge vacuoles with storage material that was not just in macrophages, but also in the polymorphic nucleosides in the blood and also in histiocytes in the duodenum. Basically, wherever you looked, the cells had these huge vacuoles. And when these patients underwent exome sequencing, they both had the same variant in the gene CLCN7. And what's interesting about this gene is it's a um, transporter, a chloride hydrogen exchanger that had already been associated with disease but a different condition, which actually caused osteopetrosis when there was a loss of function of this gene, um, where the lysosomes were actually less acidic and the bones couldn't be broken down. And that's why these patients had osteopetrosis, but these patients were thoroughly evaluated for osteopetrosis and they didn't have it. And that's what led the investigators to think, perhaps this is actually the opposite. What if the lysosomes are working a little bit too well and they're actually too acidic? And when they tested in the fibroblast of the patients, that's exactly what was happening. And the beautiful thing about not knowing the mechanism of a disease is that then you can target for treatment. And that's what they did. They said, well, what if we give these patients something that will actually alkalinize, make it more basic, less acidic, and see what happens? And indeed, they were able to give chloroquine, which actually increased the lysosomal pH. So we think this is a beautiful story that highlighted that you have to have bench scientists, you have to have clinicians, you have to have people in multiple places and actually putting a story like this together to understand what a single mutation is doing in order to help these patients. And I, I suppose that that correlation of genetics and, and other things comes across in the second two cases, because you look at the role of the extensive clinical evaluation that you're doing in reaching a diagnosis, this deep phenotyping you both talked about. In an era where whole genome sequencing is becoming the default, you know, we'll have patients who will be able to access their own genome regardless of genetic counselling soon. It's no longer a last resort. How relevant is the clinical phenotype? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I think anytime some novel new uh, diagnostic technology comes out, there's a lot of excitement over it, potentially some some over-enthusiasm as well. I imagine when MRIs became available, there were people who said, you're not even going to need to talk to the patient or examine them anymore. Just run them through the scanner and you're going to get your answer. And that has turned out to not be the case. And it hasn't been the case for sequencing either. I think the example of leukoencephalopathy with cerebral calcifications and cysts due to pathogenic variants in SNORD-118 that we discussed in the, in the paper is a good example. So this is a man with progressive dystonia whose neuroimaging revealed widespread uh, calcifications and cysts throughout the brain parenchyma, who was tentatively diagnosed with neurocystocercosis until antibody testing was negative, calling that into question. He then underwent exome and then subsequently genome sequencing, which, you know, if that would always give an answer, would have been the end of his diagnostic odyssey. Uh, but unfortunately, it did not. It was non-diagnostic for him, and he was enrolled in the UDP, at which point one of our brilliant clinicians, Dr. Camilo Toro, sat down and put together all of the history, exam, labs, imaging, and took to the literature to examine the case and found a newly described disease association with the SNORD-118 gene. And so then he went to our bioinformatics team and we reinterrogated that gene and they were able to find pathogenic variants and make the diagnosis. So I think this really highlights the importance of integrating the clinical phenotype as you're analyzing the sequencing. Beyond that, I think it also highlights the importance of the time that it takes to do that. And so programs like the UDP are really critical to allow clinicians with the expertise, the time to use that on these really difficult cases. Okay. It's so Im impressive what you do. I'm, I'm sure there are some doctors who'd quite like to not talk to patients, but um, <laughs> <laughs> thankfully they're the exception rather than the yeah. rule. Well, and, and I um, think, uh, you know, uh, most doctors would love to have the, the time to be able to do this. It's just unfortunate with a lot of the constraints of, of modern medicine after a busy clinic day and administrative responsibilities, other academic pursuits, trying to juggle all that with, with life outside the hospital. It becomes difficult to, to find the time to really spend on, on a case like this. Yeah. And even in the second case too, there were 72 candidate genes for that case. Um, this was the little boy that had low tone and the multiple contractors and easy bruising. This NEP array had shown this large region of homozygosity. And how do you pick of 72 genes that are in that region? How do you pick the one that you think it's actually the one causing the disease? And that because of the detailed phenotyping uh, that he got done at NIH was how they were able to actually narrow it down to the, to the candidate gene, to the CHST14. And the mechanism made sense. Based on all the things that they were able to see, the wound healing, the, the issues with the tendons and all that, because that's exactly what the gene does. So I feel like being able to do this deep phenotyping and pull the picture together takes multiple people. It's truly a multidisciplinary endeavor. It's very hard to have a single person that can run everything and analyze everything and go back and reanalyze it. And especially in Walter rare cases, he was the first in the U.S. And then throughout the world, only 66 people have been reported. So it does take time and, and effort and a huge team to to put these cases together. And obviously making a diagnosis is one thing, but it's really impressive when the diagnosis leads to treatment, because that's obviously you know what we really want, isn't it, for our patients? Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the cases we describe in the paper is that of a patient with amyloidosis who was successfully treated with bone marrow transplantation. 
one of the things that I do want to highlight about this case is you'll notice there was no genetic diagnosis made. So this is really one of the advantages of having a program like the UDP that brings together multidisciplinary specialties is you're not only equipped to make a, a genetic diagnosis, but non-genetic diagnoses as well. And as this case illustrates, you don't always need to find the pathogenic variant to be able to help the patient. But you know, I think uh, in terms of the impact that treatment can have, a quote from the patient can sum it up far better than, than I can. So the patient from this case has said, having a serious mystery condition scared me to my core. A long medical journey left me without hope until I discovered the undiagnosed disease program. It's amazing doctor scientists saved my life. The program and its doctors save some patients like me directly with a diagnosis and road to treatment. They save some through the knowledge gained in research. They expand the boundaries of what is possible. So I think better than anything that I can say, that really sums up the value of a program like the UDP. It is a truly incredible project. I mean, I, I hope that you know other countries do similar but different things. I wonder how it sort of continues in the face of sort of relentless progress that we're seeing. I you know, was looking back in 2012, exome sequencing was being done really more as a research project. Now we've had labs publish a same-day pipeline for whole genome analysis. I'm not sure that's reproducible on a regular basis, but it can be done. How does the UDP continue to evolve in the context of all of this? We think there is absolutely a, still a place for programs like this because there is plenty of new diseases to be discovered, including 50% of the ones that we have seen and we haven't been able to diagnose at the UDP. Um, when clinical genomes or clinical exomes are sent from clinic, this is something that people may not know, that when you do it outside of research, only known variants that are already associated with disease are what's actually reported. So you don't get a report of possible new genes. So genetic testing that is sent for clinic, even if it's a genome sequence, is not for discovery. It's for confirmation of known variants associated with disease. Because it takes so much time, as we've discussed, years of work to actually know what a variant is doing. And the UDP is not just sequencing center. It's the human capital and the collaborations that, as we've been talking about, the shared expertise is what solves the cases. It's not just a technology. It's not just a platform. And actually, a lot of the patients that come to us already come with sequencing results in hand, genomes and exomes. And oftentimes we had to take that data and reanalyze it to understand the pros and cons of the testing modality they've, they had. Um, what are the limitations? Like, for example, the coverage of the sequencing that these patients have had. When was the sequencing sent? Because for the past like five years, the technology has improved tremendously. So sometimes you have to redo things and truly understand what you could be missing. What are the limitations of each genetic test? Because not a single test can answer every single condition. Like, for example, last fall, I had a case of a patient that had come with exomes and genomes and no diagnosis. And we actually had to send an epigenetic test to confirm the clinical suspicion. And that allowed us to go back and reanalyze genome and upgrade a variant that had been classified as of uncertain significance. And we were able to do that because we had deep phenotype and we had this other test that the clinician wasn't able to send from the clinic because it hadn't been covered by insurance, for example. So the process is just this reiterative process. There will always be new technologies that will be harder to send from clinic. We have this system where insurance has to pay and approve, even though we think it's what's best for patients. I don't know how it works in Europe, but at least here, it's harder for clinicians to send what we think is most appropriate for the patient because the insurance may disagree. So we 
have to have a program where we can have the ability to send what we need to send and be able to integrate it with prior testing and arrive at the correct diagnosis. And also because sequencing is phenotype driven, we need to start with good phenotypes and we need to have access to phenotyping that has been done even before. And again, because of the way things work in the United States, a lot of doctors do not have access to the same medical record in a systematic and a unified fashion. So because different states and even within the same state in the same city, different providers will use different systems. So it's harder. The system is fractured in a way that when someone comes to NIH, when someone is a participant of our program, we all have access to the same information and we talk with each other. These providers have the time to sit down and discuss at the end of an admission, what are our findings? What do we think this patient has? And it has provided for me some of the most valuable experiences as a fellow at NIH to, to interact with the clinicians that have seen a patient and, and put it all together. I'd love to know the country that's one got perfect medical record keeping and two, <laughs> two has the perfect solution to funding. I don't, I, I don't know who that is, but uh, you know, if people want to write in and say they've got it. I'd be glad to hear about it. I mean, so I assume everyone gets a diagnosis. You know, you either don't, you can't be discharged unless you've got a diagnosis. Then, you know, if you take someone on, they're with you until you've got an answer, or do you sometimes have to throw the towel in so we can't do it? I would say they stay in the program. They, they The admission only lasts a few days and then they are discharged when the evaluation is done. But the patient is part of the program for years until an answer is, is obtained. And that process is not linear. And that process will require going back and going back. So the admission is just the beginning. The work starts after that patient leaves NIH. And if you're in the doghouse, is that when you get given all the, the, the unsolved cases to work? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's part of the joy and the mission of, of some of our clinicians. They want to do that. Um, you, you, it's part of it's part of why you're here on Earth. So, <laughs> you know that that is true. Uh, the the great thing about this paper is that your cases are predominantly adults, and I think what we see in in, in I'm a pediatrician, and we're in pediatrics. You, children come with an advocate. They come with these parents who want answers. I think there's a danger as children become adults there is less advocacy around them and less supporting them i mean there's a huge swathes of we don't know how many patients we don't know about kind of thing we don't have their answers how do we make sure no one gets left behind right thank you for asking this question it's one very near and dear to my heart because in addition to my training in, in pediatrics and genetics i also am trained as an internist so it's something i've given a lot of thought to and i think programs like the undiagnosed disease program really have the capability to help adults as well overcome some of the challenges that you're more likely to face in, in trying to diagnose an adult patient as opposed to a pediatric patient so for instance an adult patient is less likely to have parents available for sequencing and we know sequencing a trio will increase your diagnostic yield, so it limits your ability to call variants, especially de novos or phasing variants. So they may need additional sequencing, for instance, long reads to phase variants or uh, find new variants. In addition, you know, thinking about metabolic diseases, you know, a general rule of thumb is that uh, later onset diseases are due to hypomorphic changes in the protein that that are more likely to be due to missense changes as opposed to the very early onset cases that are complete loss of function due to, for instance, premature termination codon or frame shift variants. And so those missense variants are often going to require a lot more research validation to prove pathogenicity. But to answer your question about genetics more broadly and how we can make sure that adults aren't left behind, I think it really boils down to starting with education. So for instance, in the United States, 
last year for combined internal medicine and genetics training, there were almost four times as many applicants as there were spots available. So I think we really need to expand out the supply for those interested to be able to train more providers to legitimize internal medicine genetics as a subspecialty. That's the long game. That's going to take some time. I think there are educationally things we can do in the more short term to improve the condition as well. Uh, for instance, increasing the amount of genetics education that's done in internal medicine residency programs and through continuing medical education. And I speak mostly about internal medicine and the internal medicine subspecialties because that's what I have the most experience with. But I assume there's room for improvement in other specialties that take care of predominantly adults as well, neurology, ophthalmology, obstetrics, just to name a few. So I don't think I need to convince anybody who's listening to this podcast that Genetics is and, and will be playing an increasingly large role in all areas of medicine. So I think it's really up to us who have the expertise in this area to make sure that all providers and the systems that we practice in are able to use that to help patients as best we can. I mean, that sounds perfect. And I think it's important to understand genetics, but also know, you know what it doesn't tell us and, and the limitations of those tests the exomes and the genomes and what they do tell us, but also what they, they fail to tell us. It's so fascinating to hear from both of you. It's a really impressive project. I would urge people who uh, want to find out more to read your paper. You can do that by clicking the link in the podcast description or going uh, to the journal web pages and searching for diagnosis and discovery, NIHUDP. Thomas and uh, Carolina, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> and thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.